following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. Great to see all of you. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Missio Day, and uh, really grateful that you would take some time out of your weekend to be with us. Uh, if you are new and uh, looking to maybe get involved here or know a little bit about us, the easiest way to do that is your uh, Connect card. It's the gray and blue card in the seat back in front of you. And uh, you can also go to our website, mdcashville.org connect. If you uh, fill that out, we're giving $5 to uh, Haywood County Flood Relief uh, in your honor, in your name. And so I'd uh, love to be generous on your behalf. You can just put those cards. If it's an email, it'll come to us and, and we'll, we'll donate. But if it's a card, they can go in those black giving boxes in the back of the room. And uh, that will let us know that you are here. And I uh, would love to follow up and pray with you, that kind of thing. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 13. We have been slowly, since the week after Easter, uh, making our way through the book of Acts. We find ourselves in the second half of uh, chapter 13 this morning. And Acts, as I say almost every week, is all about the power of God that's been unleashed through God's people, through his church. And uh, as that has happened, we have seen the church grow from a handful of shell-shocked disciples on this hillside after the death and resurrection of Jesus to a multi-nation movement. Uh, tens of thousands by this point in the book of Acts have given their lives to Jesus. And we know that today, uh, around 2.5 billion people on this planet would call themselves followers of Jesus. When we give God praise for that, that, that so many uh, have surrendered their lives to Jesus in this current, uh, current day. And yet, there's an increasing sentiment that faith is a private matter, um, that you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as you don't try to convince other people of what you believe. There's this increasing sentiment that, that um, we should not try to proselytize or, or evangelize. Even, even Christians have come to believe that. There's this growing category in our world called spiritual but not religious. And uh, a lot of people, even who who've sort of have grown up in Christian churches, are now uh, blending their faith in Christ with other faith practices. And it's sort of the norm today to sort of do salad bar faith where you pick, I like the teachings of Jesus, but I like this Buddhist ethic over here, and I like what this shaman says, and I want to do this practice. And so we sort of create our own religious practice or spirituality based on what works for us. And it's gotten to the point that I just read this, this last week in the Christian Post, which is a, a, a news magazine uh, for believers. They cited a survey this week, just this week, uh, that 70% of the Christians that they surveyed, 70, 70% said uh, they denied that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Which makes the book of Acts kind of confusing right? Why would these people give their lives for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ if there's all kinds of other ways to, say, to be saved? And who are we to go to other countries and other people and other places and tell them that what they believe is wrong? Who are we to tell them that if they don't surrender to Jesus, that they will spend eternity separated from him in hell? 
Doesn't it seem a little arrogant of us, uh, a little brash, a little bold, to even unloving to tell people that unless they believe in Jesus that they're wrong? I would, I would argue that it, it does feel brash, bold, arrogant, and unloving to tell people the message of the gospel unless it's true. And if the gospel is true, if Jesus really is the only one who can save people from their sins, if, G- if, if there is something called exclusivity in the sense that only Jesus is our pathway to God, to salvation, to heaven, then it is the height of love and compassion for other people that we share the message of Jesus with them. It's actually arrogant to not share the gospel with people if we really believe that this message of the gospel is true. So what I want to do this morning, and we're looking at Paul, the, the first recorded sermon of Paul. This isn't his first sermon, it's just the first one we have in the book of Acts. And it's actually pretty short, um, but for us in terms of reading it, it's long. This whole section we're going to read today is about 39 verses. So uh, what I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to read a chunk of it, talk about it, read a chunk of it, and talk about it. But my simple hope today is simply to give you exhortation, to encourage you in the truth of the gospel, and then we'll make some points of application at the end about what we do with this. If this gospel really is true, what do we do with it? Okay? You guys with me on that? All right. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you are the one true God. Uh, Lord, we come to you by faith, not by sight. We are convinced in our own hearts and minds uh, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he lived and died and rose again, and by simple faith, by receiving the truth of the gospel with empty hands, uh, we can be saved, we can be forgiven, we can be freed, we can be adopted into your family as your beloved children. And for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, we are grateful that you would give your life for ours. And yet we recognize that not everyone in this room, certainly not everyone in our spheres of relationship or in this city follow you. Many are hardened to the gospel. Many rejected out of hand as myth and folklore and lie. And, and so, Father, help us to be more convinced in our own hearts and minds of the reality of this gospel. Help us to be more impassioned uh, for the lost around us and give us the boldness and the courage to share this message because we love people and we want them to see the beauty of Jesus. Lord, we ask for your help as we study this morning, and I pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said... All right, got a lot, a lot of work to do, so let's get started. Um, if you're a note taker, I'm just going to go ahead and give you the points first, and we'll read the text. So uh, the, first, the first point here is the promise of salvation. Look with me at Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. It's a different Antioch than we looked at last week. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. 
And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John, as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me comes, uh, is, coming, this, the, is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. All right, let's stop there for a minute. The promise of salvation. Now, uh, I meant to have the guys put the map up so we could look at the geography, but I totally forgot to ask them, so we're not going to have a map this morning. But uh, suffice it to say, if you were with us last week, they were on this island of Cyprus, and then, and then they sail from there sort of north. Hey, look at that. Ask and you shall receive. So, uh, so the little island of Paphos, Paphos uh, or on Cyprus, it's a town in Cyprus, it's, it's over here. Well, I'm going to do this. Right over there, in the middle of the, in the, middle of the ocean. Um, so they sail sort of northwest, okay? So all these towns and cities that are mentioned here, uh, Perga and Pamphylia, that's all to the northwest of where they were last week in Cyprus, okay? So that's where they land. <clears throat> and you notice that they list Paul as the leader. Now, up till this point, who's been first? Barnabas. It was Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. And perhaps after that miracle that happened, uh, as we looked at last week, when uh, Paul blinded the magician, right, who was trying to distract uh, the, the Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, from believing, perhaps that sort of solidified it. But for whatever reason, Paul is now the leader. So it's Paul and his companions. And from this point forward, Paul will be the leader of this, of this group. It, the text tells us here that they're, they're going on. They go to Persia and Pamphylia uh, or Perga, and then, uh, and then they head up to Antioch of Pisidia, which is about 100 miles north of where Perga is. But there's one little note that Luke just sort of mentions and moves on, and that is that John or John Mark left them. You see that in verse 13? John left them and returned to Jerusalem, and then Luke just sort of leaves it. Um, and he doesn't say much more about it. But we, we find out a little bit later in Acts chapter 15 that this was a huge point of contention for Paul. Uh, there's actually two different words for left. So Luke, Luke uses one word for left, and Paul uses a different word for left. He left us. And the word that Paul uses means he forsook us. He abandoned us. He, 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 uh, he fled, right? And so for Paul, this becomes a point of contention that will actually end up separating him and Barnabas later when, when Barnabas wants to take John Mark back with them on another journey. And Paul's like, no, 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 this dude left us. He abandoned us. I'm not bringing him again. And then actually ends up separating them. But that's for another time. Why would he do that? Some believe that, that Paul might have gotten malaria, that he was deathly ill. In fact, in the, so this whole region, uh, Perga and all that, is in the region of Galatia. And uh, later in the book of Galatians, when Paul is writing to that church, he says, you know, it was because of a severe illness that I preached the gospel to you. So that he landed in that region of Galatia only because he was sick. Many people think he was on his, almost on his deathbed with malaria. We also know that that, that hundred-mile journey uh, uh, up to Antioch of Pisidia, 
was very dangerous. It was mountainous. Uh, it was often flooded, and there were robbers. It was notorious for robbers there. And so perhaps John Mark was like, hey, I am out, okay? This has been fun going through Cyprus. It was a nice mission trip, but I'm going home. And Paul was furious about it, okay? Uh, but for whatever the, the reason was, uh, they separate, okay? And so here, here comes Paul and Barnabas and the rest of his crew, sans John Mark, and they come into uh, Antioch of Pisidia, which has a, uh, there were like 16 different Antiochs, okay, <laughs> in the New Testament uh, or, or at this time. And so uh, that's why they're always giving you, it's this Antioch, not that Antioch. It's going to be kind of confusing. Uh, but they come in and they know there's a large Jewish population there, okay? And so as Paul's MO usually is, they go into the synagogues first. They recognize that these people already believe the Bible, and if they can convince them of Jesus from the Bible, they've got more people on their missionary team. And so that's what they do. Now, you have to know this. Jewish synagogue services usually started with, uh, with some readings, a reading from the law of Moses, then from the prophets, okay? Uh, then they would, they would pray the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, a, a, a prayer that even Orthodox Jews today still recite, and some other prayers. And then they would have an exhortation, basically a sermon uh, given by a rabbi based on the text that they read that day. And often they would invite a traveling rabbi to give the exhortation, right? Which is why they invite Paul to do so. This still happens. Every time I go to Tanzania, uh, they ask me to preach, uh, but they don't tell you in advance, <laughs> So I was warned about this. Uh, I had some friends who went to Uganda a few years ago and they were at a church and uh, they just asked my friends, hey, do you want to preach? And my friend's not a pastor. He's not a preacher. Uh, they're like, do you want to preach? Please preach for us. And he's like, ah, so right on the spot, right? He had to open up the Bible and just preach some message, whatever you could think of. And he went for like 45 minutes, okay? And then the pastor was like, thank you. And then he got up and preached for another hour. Like, this is how they roll, man. Uh, so I am prepared. I bring my iPad. It's got multiple sermons on it. And if they ask me to preach, I'm ready to roll. But that's how it works. Now, they may have known Paul because he was a rising star in Judaism. Remember, he, he uh, taught, was taught under uh, Gamaliel, who was like a really well-known uh, rabbi at the time. But for whatever the reason, they invite him to preach, and they have no idea what they're asking for, right? And so Paul calls them together, and whatever the hand motion is, he goes, hey, listen, 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 listen. It's like Charles Stanley. Listen, y'all, listen. Give me your full and undivided attention, right? What I have to say to you is of critical importance. Now, there's, there's two things I want you to know about Paul's sermon before we really look at it. First of all, this is probably a summary of Paul's sermon, not his actual sermon, right? It's like 600 words. Uh, it's like f 10 sentences, okay? Some of you are like, that sounds like a good sermon. Can you do that? No. Um, but I'm saying it's a summary because we find out in Acts chapter 20 that Paul preaches well into the evening, like, like midnight. And you remember this story? There's a guy named Eutychus who falls out a window because so, he falls asleep at the preaching of Paul, falls out a window down to the first story, and he dies. And then Paul has to come down and bring him back to life. And you know what Paul does after that? He goes back to preaching. <laughs> so this probably is not the, sum, the whole sermon that Paul preached, but rather it's sort of cliff notes, right? It's the main points of what he preached. But secondly, I want you to notice this, uh, that, that Paul, and you'll see this as we go through the rest of the book of Acts, Paul chooses his starting point for the gospel based on his audience. So here he's going to speak to Jews in a synagogue. So he starts with 
their fathers, with Abraham and with the Exodus and all that. When we get to Acts chapter 17, and he's talking to the philosophers, right, and the thinkers of the day in Athens, he doesn't start with this, the gospel, or he doesn't start with the Bible. He doesn't start with the Old Testament. He starts with their own poets and philosophers. So as we are thinking about how we share the gospel, uh, there are multiple ways to share the same truth, but we need to start where someone is. So if you're speaking to someone who grew up in the church, you might be able to start with the scripture. If you're speaking to a Jewish friend, you could start with the Old Testament. If you're speaking to an atheist, you could start somewhere else. If you're speaking to someone in, you know, wrapped up in New Age philosophy, you could start somewhere else. But that means we also need to be aware of all the different sort of starting points and the thoughts and, and, and all that kind of stuff that, that people are, are coming to the table with. So he starts here with our fathers, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. Then he speaks of the Exodus. Um, he covers, I mean, Paul is nothing if not concise. He covers 450 years of the history of God's people in 10 verses. <laughs> 10 verses. But here's his whole point in doing so. He is showing them God's faithfulness. 16 times in this passage, he mentions uh, God's provision. Okay? He says things like this. God chose our people, right? He chose you. He picked, he picked Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. He, uh, he made them great in the land of Egypt. He led them out of Egypt. He put up with them, which really has to do with caring for them, although he put up with them uh, in the wilderness. He defeated their enemies. He gave them the land. He directed. He redirected. He rebuked. He encouraged. He loved. Like this is, he's showing them over and over again. Don't you see throughout your entire history how God has provided, how he has blessed, how he has prepared you for this moment? And that leads him to the pinnacle of his argument, which is in verse 23. Speaking of David, of this man, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Isn't that good news? God provided a Savior just as, just as he promised, and his name is Jesus. And I love that Paul wastes no time in getting to Jesus. He's only like seven lines into this sermon, and he's already gotten to Jesus. He even mentions here uh, John, who many thought of as sort of the last prophet, okay? John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance, but even John said, I'm not he, but he's coming after me, and I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. Paul's, Paul's point here is that everyone and everything in history has been building toward Jesus the Christ. That Jesus is the central figure in all of humanity, in all of history. And you can step outside of religion and see this, that Jesus is the dividing line in all of history. I know we've tried to change it and call it BCE and CE, but it's still BC and AD, right? The dividing line is because of Jesus, that it's, it, we are now in 2020 years after the year of our Lord, and everything that came before Jesus is before Christ or before the common era, which is the era of Christ, <laughs> okay? He is literally the, the dividing line of all history, and, and more books have been written about Jesus, and more artwork has been created for Jesus, and more songs have been sung to Jesus than anyone in ever, ever in all of history, 
So there's something special about this man. If you're a person who doesn't have faith this morning, you have to acknowledge that reality, that he is the dividing line of history, that he is the central figure in all of history, that he is the most controversial, but the most written about. And why is that? According to Paul, it's because Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news worth sharing? That he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he's going to explain a little bit more about that as we get into the next section here. So uh, if you're a note taker, once again, you can write this down. Point two is the message of salvation. The message of salvation. And here he's going to explain some of these promises that were made throughout the Old Testament. So look with me at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, so non-Jewish believers in the Jewish God, God-fearers, brothers, so that's Jews and non-Jewish believers, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Watch this. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. He's speaking of folks like Peter and John. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by, here he goes again, raising Jesus. As also it is written in a second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. Now he's quoting another scripture. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's Isaiah 55. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. It means he died. And he was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption, meaning his body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. He did not see corruption. We're going to stop there. The message of salvation. So God provided in all these amazing ways throughout the ages. And all along the way, he had promised a savior. And Paul says the people longed for this savior and they prayed for this savior. They knew a, a, a Messiah, a savior was coming. And then he says, guess what? He came and we missed it. We didn't recognize him. Paul's even, I think he's including himself here. You remember that Paul was a Jew of the Jews, right? He knew the, the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards, and even he missed that Jesus was the fulfillment of these promises, right? He says, we didn't recognize him. We didn't even understand the promises of God in the scriptures, the prophecies about the Messiah, or else we would have recognized him. It reminds me of... Um, uh, really, Jesus' kind of first sermon in Acts, uh, Luke chapter 4. 
If you know the story, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, right? The Spirit sends him into the wilderness to be tempted by the, the enemy. And then he comes uh, back to his hometown, and he's in the synagogue, and they ask him if he has anything to say. Very similar to what Paul's doing here. And Jesus comes up, and he finds, he un- unrolls the scroll. It's Isaiah 61. And it says, I've come to preach good news to the poor and to relieve the prisoner and, you know, give eyes to the blind and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus says... Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he rolls the scroll up and he sits down. And the people are so confused and so livid that he would say that it's fulfilled by him, in him, that they want to kill him. That's what I'm talking about. They missed it, right? They they totally missed it. And in their misunderstanding, they actually fulfilled those very promises and prophecies. They actually fulfilled what God said would happen because they missed him. So then he quotes from Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and Isaiah 55, as I just read here, which are three of over 300 different promises and prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures about Jesus. Did you know that? There's over 300 promises about Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. Specific detailed promises Okay? Details about where he would be born and to whom he'd be born and the kind of family that he would be raised in and how he would be experienced when he came uh, into the world and what kind of life he would live. There's even details about the death, the burial, and the, and the resurrection of Jesus, which is crazy when you think about it because Jesus was crucified and crucifixion was not a Jewish form of of execution in the Old Testament days. They, they barely even knew about crucifixion. And the fact that in the Old Testament scriptures, prophets, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, would write about the crucifixion, death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is bananas, unless it's true. <laughs> and what is this message of salvation? Paul essentially tells us here, Jesus came to live a life we couldn't and to die the death we all deserve. Jesus is God in the flesh who became like one of us, who took on human flesh, who, um, uh, I think it's the message translation says, took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, John 1, right? That he, he took on our human experience that with all its joys, with all its temptations, but verse 28 here says, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, They asked Pilate to have him executed. This isn't just no guilt in their circumstance. This means in Jesus was found no guilt. He was without guilt because he was without sin. Imagine that. Like you and I feel guilt, some of us, all the time. Right? Why? Because we don't measure up. We don't measure up to our own standards of ourself, much less measuring up to the standards of a holy God. We feel guilt. We feel shame, right? Because we're not enough. But here's Jesus, tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. But then verse 29 says, when they had carried out all that was written of him, how he would die, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, which tells us, Jesus died on a tree. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago when Peter was preaching to Cornelius, Peter used that same language. 
that he was, he was nailed to the tree. And I told you then, the reason why he used the word tree and not cross is because to the Jewish mind, there's a scripture in Deuteronomy that says, cursed is, every, is anyone who, is, who dies on a tree. And what Paul and what Peter were communicating there is that Jesus did not just die, he died as a curse. Jesus was without sin. Uh, death is the result of sin. Our first parents in Genesis uh, they sinned, they rebelled against God, they, choose to, they chose to be their own authority, okay, and reject the gracious authority of their creator, and in so doing, they died. Death is the result of sin, and all of us have sin, which is why all of us are going to die. I don't know if you know that, but all of us are going to die, okay? Death rate, always hovering at 100%. But Jesus had no sin, and yet Jesus died, why? Because he became a curse for us. He took the curse that we deserve for all of our sin, for all of our guilt, for all of our shame, for all the times that we've rejected the gracious authority of God and chosen to be our own authority, whether it's in external actions or internal motivations. Okay? All of our sin, Jesus took on himself, and he became the curse that we deserve. Jesus took the judgment of God that was due to us rightly, and he absorbed it into himself and gave us back nothing but blessing to be received with the empty hands of faith. And then verse 29 tells us, they took him down from the tree. They laid him in a tomb. Jesus was dead, buried in a tomb. Okay, this isn't just uh, Jesus flatlined and then resuscitated and wrote a best-selling book about it. He died a violent death a brutal death, a criminal's death. He was really dead for three days, okay? So imagine you know someone who passes away, you go to the funeral, you see them in the casket, they close the lid, they put them in the ground, they throw dirt on it, and three days later, you're at Ingalls, and he comes up to you and goes, what's up? Okay, that's what we're talking about. He rose from the grave, and, and Paul goes to no length to remind us of that. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. Verse 33, uh, that's he, uh, let's see. Uh, sorry, maybe it's a different verse. I, I wrote down 33, maybe I was wrong. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead. Verse 37, but God raised him up and he did not see corruption. I mean, over and over and over again, he, he is trying to remind us he, he's, he's alive. So we're separated from every other religion on the planet because our founder is alive. He's not just some good religious moral teacher who said, here's some stuff you can do to be right with God. He said, you can't be right with God. I will make you right with God. I will die in your place and I will rise again and I will welcome you into the kingdom. Sin and death and hell have been defeated for us by King Jesus. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news worth sharing? The message of salvation. But then, finally, the freedom, the freedom of salvation. Look with me at verse 38. Y'all are into it today. I love it. <clears throat> I don't have to ask, are you with me? Because I know you're with me. This is wonderful. Let it be known, verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, 
Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest, you, lest what is said in the prophets should, be, should come about. He quotes Habakkuk now. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not even believe, even if someone told it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas as they spoke with him and urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Wouldn't that be something? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the lead men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went into Iconium. And I love this last line. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news? <laughs> the freedom of salvation. Right now, brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive and well, and he is seated on his throne as Lord, and God, and Savior, and Christ, King, and Judge. And all that is required for any one of us to come to him is to come with the empty hands of faith, receiving the gift of mercy that he has on offer. And look what he says here. All who come to Jesus, any who would surrender to Jesus, he says, are freed, forgiven and freed. Uh, right here in, and I should have made a note of this. There's, there's so many verses here. Verse 38, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. Now, in some translations, the word freed here is, also, is the word justified. It's actually the, original, the word in the original language, justified. That's interesting. That's Paul's whole deal for the whole rest of the New Testament is justification by faith in Christ alone. All who come to Jesus are forgiven and freed. Let me ask you something. Do you ever feel chained to your sin? You ever feel like you're just never going to get free of it? That it's always going to have its hands around your throat, so to speak? Paul says here we can be free. Why? Because all of our sin, past, present, and future, was transferred to Jesus. And when Jesus died, he paid our debt in full. And in that way, the gospel does for us what Paul says the law cannot do. Now, again, he's speaking to Jews here who know very well the law of Moses, okay? And we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments because the rabbi said, well, we have ten, but I mean, how do we know when he says we should rest on the Sabbath? What's that really mean? And so they searched the scriptures to come up with 
all these other commandments to help them sort of keep guardrails on this thing. And so we've got 613 commands in the Old Testament plus others that the rabbis put in place, right, in order to protect themselves. And here's what the law does. It shows us our need to be justified, but it cannot justify us. The speed limit shows you how to be justified. (laughs) The speed limit shows you, okay, what the law is. But when you break it, the speed limit can't help you anymore. Right? The law can only show us our need. It reveals our weakness. It reveals our inability to measure up. But it can't do anything else for us. It can't provide justification. And this is, again, where the gospel of Christ, this Christian message, is completely different than any other message on the face of the planet and contradicts our own hearts because every other religion and our hearts want to justify ourselves. We want to prove our worth to ourselves, to God, to others. Some of us do this by disobedience, right? Some of us, we we just sang that, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Some of us are prone to wander through our disobedience. Some of us are prone to wander by our reliance on our obedience. But the law of God demands perfect obedience. And even if that was possible outwardly, which it isn't, what about inwardly? What if we took these TV screens here And we just started running a scroll of all of your sins and mine, outward sins and inward sins, right? This past week, just just today, (laughs) it's 947. We got an early start on sin this morning, didn't we? Okay. What, I mean, if we just started running a scroll of every, every place where we have failed to fulfill the law of God, failed to measure up, failed to do what God says we ought to do, failed to not do what God says we shouldn't do, if all that just started scrolling through here on the screens, how would you feel? Guilty? Ashamed? Crushed? Embarrassed? And we could put next to it, here's the law you broke. And it would help none. It would condemn us even further. We'd look at that and we'd go, oh, I didn't even know that was a law, and I broke that one too. But when we surrender to Jesus, the screens are wiped clear. And not only that, we are credited with Jesus' perfect obedience. So we are freed from the penalty of sin, but we are also freed from the power of sin in our lives the more that we follow him. This is the gift that comes to us, to those who receive Christ, to those who, with the empty hands of faith, receive what Jesus has done for us. This is what is on offer for us. But he, 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 he pulls no punches here to remind us that for those who reject Jesus, they will experience God's just condemnation forever. He quotes Habakkuk here. Uh, If you know the story of Habakkuk, uh, God's people were rebellious, and Habakkuk was crying out to God, what are you going to do about the sin of your people? And God said, oh, I'm going to do something all right. (laughs) 
I'm going to bring a more wicked nation to judge your wicked nation. And Habakkuk's like, not what I was asking for, right? And he's confused. And, and so God is telling him, I'm going to do something in your day you wouldn't even believe it if I told you. There's judgment coming. The Gentiles are astounded at this good news, aren't they? They are like, we got to hear more of this. We, can you come back tomorrow, come back next Sabbath and tell us more about Jesus? And they do so, and the Jews feel threatened. The religious people who are relying on self-justification are completely threatened by this message of the gospel. It is an affront to the way that they live. It's an affront to everything that they know. Because their whole lives, they've been measuring their goodness right? According to the external law and according to how other people are doing. And now all of a sudden, Paul says, no, no, that's not how it works. None of you can measure up but Jesus. And so in verse 46, Paul says to them, we had to come to you first. This is Paul's whole thing. Like the gospel comes first to the Jew, then to, then to the Gentile, but y'all rejected it. You don't want it. You're, you're, you're fine resting on your own attempt at justification. And because of that, we're done. We're going to go to the Gentiles now because they're open, they're receptive, they're humble, they want it. So listen, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is currently ruling and reigning from his throne above and he will come back one day to judge the living and the dead. And Philippians tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have an invitation to bow our knee to him now, or there's a promise that we will bow our knee to him later. And because Paul and Barnabas share this good news, look at verse 49. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the book of Acts. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. There's one translation in the Bible that says that the word of God was spreading like wildfire through the whole region. Wouldn't that be something? To see the word of God spread through the entire western North Carolina region through the 828 like wildfire. People surrendering their lives to Jesus, churches being planted, leaders being raised up, disciples being made throughout the whole region because the word of God is spreading. That's what we want to give our lives to. And the disciples, verse 52, are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news? <laughs> and isn't that worth good news? Isn't that good news worth sharing? Now, as I wrap up, because I'm running out of time here. If this gospel message is true, and I would argue that it is, okay? How should we live in response to it? If this gospel is true, the most loving, the most compassionate thing that we can do for others is to tell them the truth about Jesus. Um, you may have heard of Penn Jillette. Uh, if you know the uh, comedy group, uh, Penn and Teller, okay? Penn Jillette is one of the, the comedy duo. He is an avowed atheist. But he tells a story, this is probably 10 years ago, or more, he told a story about uh, after one of their comedy, sh or their, it's a comedy magic show, someone came up to him and gave him a Bible, said, I just, I just feel like you need to have this, I want to share this with you, 
And, uh, you know, that's a bold thing to do. And you would think that this avowed atheist would be like, get out of here with your Bible. He said it was, it was a touching thing. This man was a good man. He was humble. He loved me enough to, to give me this Bible. And here's what he says. I've always said, this is Penn Jillette speaking. I've always said that I do not respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that that's not really worth telling them about because it can make it socially awkward? It's, listen to him, a devout, avowed atheist saying this. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is far more important than that. That's why Paul is on this missionary journey in the first place. Right? He didn't believe in Jesus. Then he's converted to Jesus. And he doesn't go, well, this is good for me but I don't need to tell anyone else about it. No, he goes, my whole life has been a sham. I need to tell everybody who will listen that Jesus is king. And he goes on this missionary journey and he, he, this is a two year plus journey and then he'll take two more journeys after this and he'll end up dying a martyr for the, the gospel of Jesus. But he knows what God has done for him. He knows what is at stake. And beloved, there are thousands of people outside these four walls who are separated from God currently. And they will spend the rest of their lives and all of eternity separated from God unless someone proclaims the gospel to them. Now, I believe in a sovereign God and he saves who he will, but as we saw last week, he uses people to proclaim the gospel to save them. So you and I, we go about our everyday ordinary work about our everyday ordinary routines with eyes to see the divine appointments that God has placed in front of us and around us. Let me just point you back to, to something really quick in the text. Look at verse 36 with me. Because I think this is important. Now, he's using this as a contrast to Jesus, but I, but I love this line. Look what it says, verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, meaning he died. Brothers and sisters, God has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for your family. He has a purpose for this congregation. In this region. And, and I can think of almost nothing better to put on your tombstone than I fulfilled the purpose of God in my life and fell asleep. <laughs> right? So let's embrace the purpose of God for us, embrace the purpose of God for this congregation, because listen, the gospel is not a self-help message. The gospel is not just good advice. It is good news of the finished work of Jesus, which offers us forgiveness of sin and freedom. And those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good are called to give ourselves in our generation to sharing this good news for the joy of all who will listen. Will we be a people who give ourselves in our generation to the spread of this good news for the joy of people? What is holding us back? 
Now listen, I, I don't really have many questions. I don't have any questions really that'll be on the screen, but I do want to pose two questions to you right now before we move into communion. And those two questions are this. Number one, have you believed this good news? Have you embraced this good news for yourself? Is this good news good news to you? Have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ? And if you haven't, I would plead with you not to leave here today without doing so. You can do it right there in your seat. You can pray silently and ask, say to the Lord, I believe that you, Jesus, are the promised one. That you lived a life I couldn't. You died a death I deserve. You rose from the grave. And I want to turn from myself and turn to you. And I ask you for forgiveness and freedom. It's that simple. I'm assuming most of you have made that commitment to Christ already. So the second question that I want to simply ask you is, who in your life needs to hear this good news? Who has God surrounded you with or put you near that needs to hear this good news? And it doesn't guarantee they're going to receive it, but they need to hear it. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for these beautiful people and uh, just a chance to remember once again uh, this glorious gospel. I pray that it has been an encouragement as we think about what you have done for us in your life and your death and your resurrection, Jesus. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do in our midst, that, that you would encourage, that you would convict, that you would challenge, that you would rebuke, that you would lead us to a place of trust in Christ, lead us to salvation for those of us who have not yet trusted in you. And as we come to partake of your table, uh, as we give of our tithes and offerings, uh, Lord, as we sing and celebrate, uh, I pray that you would minister to us and that by your spirit, you would give us joy in the presence of God. We ask this in the beautiful name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.